Tino here, Internet's Busiest Music Nerd, and it's time for another edition of our weekly review roundup podcast, The Needle Drop Podcast. In this episode, we have a stacked set of reviews for you this week. Going to be talking about the latest record from Compton rapper Boogie, who has recently been brought onto the Shady Records label. His new record is Everything's for Sale. Going to be talking about the relaxing instrumentals and uh, very introspective and emotional topics approached on that record. Also, Bring Me the Horizon, Metalcore Outfit, Bring Me the Horizon, kind of surprises me on their brand new LP, Amo. I will tell you why in that review. Deer Hunter, indie legends Deer Hunter have come through with a brand new record. Why hasn't everything already disappeared? And Weezer, the Teal album. The Covers Record, the popular alternative rock band, are back with a series of uh, pretty decent covers. Also going to be approaching brand new tracks from not only King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, but a surprise collaborative cut from uh, Little Peep, Fallout Boy, and I Love McConan. And uh, that is going to be it in this episode. So get ready. Here we go. Uh, Ba-bam. And it's time for a review of the new Boogie record, Everything's For Sale. This is the new full-length album from Compton, California rapper Boogie, his big breakout project for Eminem's own Shady Records, which is turning some heads because this is a somewhat unlikely signing for the Shady Records label. Typically, Shady platforms artists that Eminem has some kind of personal history with or vested interest in, like 50 Cent and G-Unit or Slaughterhouse and D12. And while I'm not exactly sure how Boogie and Eminem's paths crossed, I'm kind of glad they did because Boogie is certainly a breath of fresh air to the Shady roster. His sound and style are actually pretty contemporary and I think would appeal to a pretty wide array of rap fans. Not just the lyrical miracle niche that many Shady artists are known to inhabit. Honestly, if I had to guess what label this record was on based on its content and its sound, I most likely would have said J. Cole's Dreamville. The instrumentals on this thing are consistently chill, ranging from very laid-back and relaxing melodic trap to beats that have some very pretty and luxurious or even spacious jazz instrumentation, like on some passages of the LOL SMH interlude, or Christian Scott's excellent trumpet playing in the second leg of the album on the song Whose Fault. There's really nothing too aggressive or over the top on the instrumental side of things on this record. Generally speaking, it's a pretty smooth and cerebral listen. Outside of a couple low-key bangers, nothing that really pops out or feels super in your face. And that's pretty much also the case for Boogie's flows and delivery. Most of his rhymes are set at this very steady mid-pace. However, Boogie Boogie is no lyrical slouch, though. The storytelling on these tracks is actually not that bad. Boogie can focus really well on a topic when he sets one. And on at least a few occasions, he drops a couple of flashy, dense verses, like on the outro to the track Soho. Boogie's voice is also kind of nasally. It has a light rasp on it when he's singing. He reminds me a little of uh, Chance the Rapper. There are at least a few spots on this record where I catch a few Kendrick-isms. However, the influence isn't so overbearing that you can't listen to it or anything like that. I, I think the similarities between Boogie and these other more popular conscious artists will only help him in the long run. And even though there are some popular rappers out there that he does remind me of, I think he does his best to separate himself with his songwriting, the tone of his lyrics, because generally the content of this record, it's pretty forlorn, it's pretty dejected, depressing, with Boogie rapping about his thin skin, his lack of confidence, being at odds with his girl in a relationship or the mother of his kid, being called a fuck boy being essentially emasculated, seeing his friends or family caught up in poverty or violence, and sadly being too stuck in his own feelings to stand up 
and be a dad. Just drowning in his own negative emotions is kind of the gist of the opening track here, with Boogie addressing criticisms of why are you rapping about this stuff, nobody wants to hear this, aren't you tired of saying all this stuff, and the conclusion he essentially comes to is, you know, you're tired of hearing it, I'm tired of living it. So as you listen to this record, don't miss the point of Boogie's style and this record in general, and that's essentially to wrestle with your own emotions, the worst and the most negative stuff, in order to come to a point where you can overcome obstacles, overcome yourself. Boogie and this project definitely have a lot of good things going for them. You can tell that he's put in a lot of work with the mixtapes he's released up until this point to prepare for what he's doing now. It shows in how well he raps, it shows in how well he sequenced this project, but for something that is such an easy and moody listen on the surface, there are quite a few potholes as you travel through the record. Whether it be some of the shorter cuts on here that I think could have used a bit more size and scope, either to be more satisfying as a song or just better illustrate the point that Boogie is making with the track, like on Soho or Live 95, both of which I think reach abrupt endings, or even the album's final three tracks, which I all think could have used a little bit more. These moments mostly feel like really good ideas, but they're not built out enough to the point where they feel like anything more than just like a motif or like a little interlude. And given that Boogie is cut from this cloth of part rapper, part singer, there are some cuts on this record where he is just straight singing. And Boogie's voice, it's very nasally, it's kind of underwhelming, it's not bad in small doses on the cuts where he's rapping quite a bit more, but when he's just singing from front to back on a track, it's really... <sighs> It gets kind of stale, because his singing voice, it's not one of his biggest selling points. Especially on the song Skydive. The much more instrumentally lush sequel to this track later on the record might be better, but not by much. In general, I'm not against the idea of doing a low-key or a melodic or a sung cut on this album. The song No Warning is definitely a highlight here, but that's mostly because of the background singers on the track that kind of balance out Boogie's vocal shortcomings. And finally, it's the features on this record. There's the black feature on here, which I think is pretty bland and uninteresting, and then there's the Eminem feature on the track Rainy Days, which is so bad the hilarity of it has kind of outshined what little hype this album has going for it. People on the internet are sharing Eminem's lyrics from this song, talking about how bad they are without having a discussion about what record these lyrics are on and whose song it is. Now, as far as Eminem's delivery on this track goes, it's actually not that bad. It's one of the more slightly aggressive cuts on this record, so Eminem's attitude really kind of fits into the track. He doesn't sound as staccato or as staconstipated as he has on his more recent work. The sound of Eminem's presence on this song does not interrupt the song or derail the album or anything like that. You can really kind of let it slide if you completely ignore what he's saying. But God damn the lyrics, just the opening lines. I left my legacy hurt, fucking absurd. Like a shepherd having sex with his sheep. F what you heard. Ugh. The closing cut on here is a pretty decent attempt at a buttery, smooth R&B and rap blend, but for the most part, Boogie sounds like a sad Chance the Rapper carbon copy, especially with that nasally rasp, especially with some of his inflections like the, you don't even smoke anymore, you don't laugh at my jokes anymore. Overall, I think this album is pleasant while it's on. The sound is pretty cool. There are some standout tracks where I think Boogie gets to the heart of some really significant personal issues. The record starts off pretty strong, 
Instrumentally, it's pretty tasteful, it's pretty consistent, but there are a lot of elements to it that I find kind of bland. There are some lackluster features, there are some tracks that I think are criminally short and underdeveloped. As a whole record, it blends together pretty nicely and it's not too long, so it doesn't overstay its welcome either. It's not a demanding listen, but unless you're dealing directly with the emotional turmoils that Boogie is presenting on these tracks, it's not necessarily a, an adventurous or a challenging listen either. I think this album is okay and suffers from many of the same issues that a lot of debut records do, but still shows a lot of potential. I'm feeling a light two decent six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the brand new Bring Me the Horizon LP Amo. This is the latest full-length LP from UK rock outfit Bring Me the Horizon, a group that I have covered before, but in all honesty, Bring Me the Horizon is a band that I've never really had that much personal investment in, a band that I've never really gotten that much out of. Their particular brand of heavily edited and formulaic and commercially viable metalcore has never really been my cup of tea. That not only goes for Bring Me the Horizon, but the countless other bands that are similar to them in style and scope. And even though general consensus amongst the music nerd community might say that Bring Me the Horizon is a bad band, maybe I'm kind of biased against their sound because I grew up in an area of the country that had deep metalcore roots and purist tendencies, which might have made me less able to enjoy how the genre, as well as post-hardcore, has evolved past bands like Fugazi and Converge and Botch and Integrity and Earth Crisis, all the New York hardcore and beatdown hardcore bands hate breed. And while part of me does miss those days, maybe being entirely dismissive toward any of the new stuff isn't the right approach either, something I'm slowly beginning to realize after watching many, many a Finn McKinty video. Punk Rock NBA, check him out. Because a lot of his work has reminded me just how versatile the metalcore scene has been post my interest in it. Once, of course, you've stripped away all the terrible, trendy, scene-stir and MySpace core crap. And of course, metalcore is not unique in its creative shortcomings over the years. The indie rock that I quickly latched onto in the 2000s is in the middle of its own artistic and identity crisis as of late. Still, though, I'm not trying to say that Bring Me the Horizon is this all-around great band that I'm just now realizing I like. For me, Sempaternal is still very much a hard pass, but the group's 2010 record, There's a Hell, actually has some pretty fantastic and cathartic moments on it. And maybe I should have paid closer attention to the band's last full-length LP, where they made the surprising turn toward pop rock and alt metal. A record that kind of left me scratching my head because I was confused as to why any new rock group would want to bring back the sounds they were toying with on these songs. Because a lot of the alternative metal, and especially the new metal of the 90s and the 2000s, it's really been either forgotten about or just looked back upon with disdain. And it's sort of understandable in a way because the ratio of good to bad records is really lopsided. But the era did have its good bands and its creative highlights, and I think Bring Me the Horizon does their best to take some of the brightest spots out of it and build on those creatively here. I mean, the most obvious musical influence on this entire record has to be, hands down, Linkin Park. Like, the first couple of Linkin Park records. There's so many pummeling choruses on this thing, backed with roaring riffs and these soaring, raspy lead vocals that sound like something straight off of the hybrid theory. There are also some small nods to more obscure bands and hits during that era too, like Ollie Sykes on the track Mantra. There's a moment where the flow on his voice during the pre-chorus sounds like that of the hook on the Trapped song, Headstrong. Headstrong, I'll take- On top of it, the band works in some really sweet pop hooks 
and unlikely bits of instrumentation that you wouldn't usually hear in this brand of metal music, like the gigantic horn sections on the finish of Wonderful Life that are pretty tastefully executed. They just sound amazing against the groovy guitar riffs and dramatic drum fills. And as long as we're talking instrumentation, the closing track on this thing, it may not be one of my favorite cuts on the entire record, but the string sections worked into that are pretty tastefully executed too. And I'm also pretty surprised that the lyrics and the song topics on this record aren't nearly as vapid as one might expect them to be in this style of music. To go back to the song Mantra as a single, it was actually pretty cool to hear these really distinct themes of belief and lies and truth and religion and cult-like behavior being worked pretty boldly into the song and the music video as well. My interest also peaked on the lyrics of the song Nihilist Blues, which is also pretty standout thanks to its really shrill, aggressive, shoegazy, electronic instrumental that sounds like a throwback to the first two Crystal Castles records. Not only that, but Grimes actually appears on the song, which is one of many very unlikely crossovers on this album. I want to emphasize that Bring Me the Horizon, they're not just putting together a novelty metal record that brings in a bit of pop, a bit of electronic music. No, I mean, there are some features and some genre crossovers on this thing that no other group at Bring Me the Horizon's level are, are willing to do at this point. There's also the song Wonderful Life featuring Danny Filth of Cradle of Filth. Not only is this cut a good song, it's a total banger with these 10-ton riffs and massive drums. It all sounds like heavy machinery, but I'm pretty intrigued by the lyrics that dive into these themes of drugs and mental deterioration, aging and wasting away, which is kind of a mature theme for such a young-sounding metal band to incorporate into their record. Then there's also the song Heavy Metal, which is a pretty catchy and clever commentary on the band's current shift in style, diving into some of the negative reactions that fans have had to these more pop and electronic-centric tracks that Bring Me the Horizon has been producing. And believe it or not, it's actually a really versatile and well-crafted track with a lot of great phases to it, from the gigantic guitar passages to these lighter, more electronic bits. There's literally a beatbox section on this thing, provided by Rizel of Roots fame. He used to be affiliated with the group. Uh, honestly, I haven't heard from this guy in years. Where Bring Me the Horizon dug him up or why they thought to do so, I'm not really sure, but I'm glad they did because it's a really cool section of the track. Again, the cross crossovers on this record are insane, and not super tacky, and not just brought into the fold for the purpose of appealing to a wider audience like, I don't know, looking at you, new Tom Morello record, you pile of garbage you. Tracks like In the Dark and Medicine, while they may not have some of the bells and whistles and weird stylistic turns that other cuts on here do, they do show that the band can pull together some very infectious and heavy anthemic pieces of pop rock, even if I do think the lyrics on the latter of those two cuts are kind of corny, like this person being a gray cloud on your life and you're being mistreated, so now you're gonna give them a taste of their own medicine. Get ready, you might feel a pinch, it's gonna be like a shot, like I'm giving you a shot, I'm a doctor, you're gonna take the medicine. Uh. Even though I do have a lot of praise for this album so far, there of course are some low points in the track list or moments that just don't really move me all that much, like the kind of bland and melodramatic intro track. Sugar Honey and Iced Tea easily has the most obnoxious hook on the entire record, even though I do love the heavy, sinister instrumentation hanging in the background. The nasally falsetto vocals on the chorus just sound so unintelligible and mushy to the point where they, they just, I think, get lost in translation a bit. The song Mother Tongue is totally unabashed, glitzy, 
pop songwriting. It sort of reminds me of stuff that Coldplay have been trying to do on their latest LPs, but a, a lot less repulsive. There's a bit of a loud rock edge on the chorus, but honestly, what, what underwhelms me about this track is that the band doesn't really put their same dark, moody spin on it that they do their other forays into pop and electronic music on this record, which is honestly one of the major things that makes these genre crossovers kind of special. It's what makes these Bring Me the Horizon songs Bring Me the Horizon songs even when they play with unlikely sounds and genres. Example, the song Why You Gotta Kick Me When I'm Down, which maybe the most prominent musical influences on this cut are trap and EDM and pop rock, but it's actually a kind of refreshing marriage of sounds backed by a pretty solid tune. The band also makes sure to work in a couple of pretty decent electronic interlude bits that tastefully fill out the track listing without feeling like filler or like they shouldn't be there. I think the record has a pretty decent flow despite the handful of cuts that I don't care for quite as much. The whole thing is consistently anthemic and heavy and luscious. And even though I do think in a sense this band still is not truly my cup of tea, I did come away from this thing very impressed by how uh, adventurous it was, how many risks the band took on this record, how many of those risks panned out really well, the songwriting quality, and the maturity that they show on some of these cuts. Their ability to craft one of their most commercially appealing records yet while also dishing out these heavy, exciting blends of metal and pop and electronic music. I'm feeling a strong six to a light seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Deer Hunter record, Why Hasn't Everything Already Disappeared? The famed indie outfit Deer Hunter, they are back with a new record. The Atlanta band has long been celebrated for their noisy, neo-psychedelic, and surreal approach to indie rock and pop. And they have crafted some pretty excellent records over the course of their nearly two-decade existence. Cryptograms, Microcastle, and what I see as like the crown jewel of their discography, Halcyon Digest. However, I do think the band has been taking some puzzling turns lately and overemphasis on solo material. One of their more recent releases, Monomania, was so lo-fi that I think it kneecapped the enjoyability of the record. Meanwhile, the band's last big commercial record, Fading Frontier, was so clean in its presentation it was easily Deer Hunter's slickest record yet. Overall, a more commercially appealing release, but lacking in the weird creative edge that makes the band's best albums their best albums. So, in this progression, where where does that put why hasn't everything already disappeared? Is it a bounce back? Is it a return to form? Is it a refreshing new direction? Honestly, it's it's none of the above. This thing is hands down the band's blandest record. It is chock full of these middling instrumentals that occasionally get a little trippy, a little art rocky, vaguely baroque in their pretty and luscious arrangements. But despite how layered this album occasionally gets, the pacing of these songs can be very tedious. And the presentation of this instrumentation, frankly, is just kind of boring. Very basic, very dry, not nearly as adventurous sonically and texturally as Deer Hunter has been known to be. I mean, don't get me wrong, the band does take a few risks on this LP. There are a few unexpected cuts like Greenpoint Gothic, an instrumental cut with mostly lifeless rhythms and Halloween synths, and these very plucky intervals that sound like they're coming off of a xylophone, but most likely are not. The whole thing sounds like a quartet of cartoon skeletons starting a progressive synth band and like banging out no 
notes on their rib cages. Even more unusual is the incredibly abstract detournement, whose inclusion onto the record and its message seems to be rooted in some meta-commentary about art and the world and travel. The entire track revolves around this somewhat disjointed instrumental and some heavily, heavily manipulated spoken word. It mostly just sounds like I'm listening to elevator music at a postmodern art installation. The song Tarnung is another track that's mostly instrumental. It features the same plucky instrumentation that was on Greenpoint Gothic, but now it's being delivered in this very steady arpeggio state. It's set against some very thick and droney horns, as well as these cultish group vocals. It's another moment on the record where the pacing is kind of tedious, though, even if I do think the stylistic change of pace is kind of refreshing for Deer Hunter. I do like that Deer Hunter is trying to change it up a little bit, but these unusual detours for the band are are not really great enough to be highlights on the record, nor do they creatively reinforce the core tracks of the album, all of which are pretty unadventurous for Deer Hunter, which wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world if the songs and the performances were super sharp. And Why Hasn't Everything Disappeared does deliver some well-written and well-produced songs. A personal highlight for me on that front is the song Planes. The tight, funky groove on this track is delivered with a playful demeanor, the layered instrumentation is gorgeous, the soaring synths or strings are heavenly. However, Planes does not reflect the numerous low points throughout this album that are pretty uneventful, like the frustratingly awkward and indulgent closing track on this record. It has this kind of rickety, ragtag vibe to it, but none of the entertainment value that usually comes with sounding this raw. The progressions and the pacing and the instrumental interlude that the track just kind of coasts out on are all pretty drab. Bradford Cox is really overselling the song vocally as he's kind of contorting his voice throughout the points of the song where you can actually hear him where his mic isn't literally dropping out. Obviously an intentional choice, but it's not something that adds to the entertainment quality of the song, in my view. And believe it or not, this is one of the rare moments on this record where Bradford actually sounds like he has kind of a pulse. I'd say on the first two cuts of this thing, he sounds so comatose it actually takes away from the quality of the songwriting. And the tunes on this thing don't really pick up until we get to the song Element, whose very easygoing rock grooves are great. I love the regal chords and the weepy layers of instrumentation, as well as the uh, uh, background vocals that are very deep and uh, in sync and very tight. Elemental, elemental. Definitely one of the more fun and cheeky moments on this record. I think Futurism is another spot on this record where the band's pop prowess shows, but uh, the recording is so just one-dimensional and gray and flat and so lo-fi that I think it, again, impedes on the enjoyability of the track. I personally just don't see what Deer Hunter gets out of such a flat, gray, lifeless sound. As I used to truly love Deer Hunter's releases for their color and their texture and their kaleidoscopic aura. And now, with this record, it just sounds muddy and occasionally vaguely dreamy. And not that you can't do this sound justice. I think there have been bands that have been working with uh, similar aesthetics to this record and have gotten better results but somehow less recognition. One group that certainly comes to mind is Paper Cuts. But I don't know, man. This record to me, it's a total crapshoot. The vibe, the style, the recording quality, the song quality, there's really <laughs> very little in the way of consistency on this LP. It's truly all over the place. I mean, at least on some of the band's more recent releases that have underwhelmed me, it seemed like they went into the record with a cohesive idea or direction. Meanwhile, this feels really messy, 
really half-baked, really underwhelming. A few tracks and songs that I thought were pretty decent but could have been greatly improved with better production or at least uh, weren't held back by whatever production they were filtered through on this thing. A few weird abstract and instrumental additions that mostly felt like uh, filler. Yeah, I'm feeling a strong four to a light five on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the brand new Weezer record, the the Teal album. It's another it's another self-titled album from Weezer with a color behind them. With a new album of originals on the way, the Black album set to release later this year, Weezer has found time to hit the studio and deliver 10 tracks, 10 new recordings of cover songs that explore a pretty wide variety of old school synth pop and rock and R&B jams. It's a pretty tight collection of tracks at 36 minutes and features the works of Michael Jackson and AHA, The Eurythmics, Black Sabbath, TLC, Electric Light Orchestra, and the cover that seemed to spark it all, Toto's Africa. If you remember last year, Weezer responded to this grassroots fan-backed campaign for them to, to cover Toto's Africa. Eventually, they came out with their own version of the soft rock classic, and miraculously, it uh, ended up being one of their biggest hits in years. So why not go back to the well to see what else you could get out of it? With a full album of cover songs. Now, I myself, I did enjoy the Africa cover, even though it did elicit a lot of groans and the prospect of an entire covers album seems to have elicited even more groans from Weezer fans or Weezer haters, the two are really difficult to tell apart at this point. Look, I'm aware as anybody else is that Weezer has a pretty rocky discography, but we are talking about the same band that did the Pork and Beans video, the same band that put an actor from the television series Lost on the front of one of their album covers, the same band whose frontman runs an Instagram page where he posts nothing but Weezer and Rivers Cuomo memes. Weezer's greatest sin across their discography is not having too much fun or just being silly. No, it's it's putting out sucky music. So if the band wants to have some fun, do something for the fun of it, and the music doesn't suck, who cares? I'd say that's a huge improvement, but sadly, Weezer's kind of caught in this place where they're like in a battle of the band that they are and the band that they've been for a long time versus the group a lot of their fans want them to be based on their first two records. What matters more than any of that is, are these covers good? Are the performances good? Do Weezer effectively put their own spin on any of these tracks? Are their renditions of these songs creative? As far as all of that goes, the Teal album is, 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 is it's a bit of a mixed bag. A majority of the cover songs on this record, though, they do follow a pretty simple formula, very much the same as the band's Africa cover. First, hit the listener with an intro that's almost a dead ringer for the original song that Weezer is covering. Then ease the listener into the realization that it is not the original, it is in fact a cover song by introducing a river's voice or maybe some other musical elements that provide a little bit of variation from the original cut. But make sure you're playing everything else pretty close to the blueprint so that nobody wants to turn it off immediately once they realize it's, it's not the song that they know and love. And then once listeners are invested for like a full minute or so, then start bringing in some some Weezerisms, a thicker, heavier, punchier mix, those roaring, chunky guitars. 
Wars. And this simple formula does lead to some pretty faithful and very entertaining renditions of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, of Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, as well as a Take on Me. There is also an amazing version of TLC's No Scrubs on this thing, too. On this cut, Rivers is very self-aware that he is not exactly the the voice or the protagonist for the story of this track, and as a result of it, I think he intentionally hams it up a little bit on this cut, adds a little more swagger and sass to his singing and his delivery. It's a song on the track list that going into it I think had the most cringe potential, but actually turned out to be one of the best here. I also think the band effectively puts their own spin on this cut pretty well, with the building vocals and wall of guitars on the bridge. I could easily see myself playing and replaying this song over and over and over. I've heard some people online critique the performances on this record as mere karaoke. And sure, maybe they are a little close to the original in some instances, and if that makes these songs qualify as karaoke, let me say that Rivers is essentially that guy at the karaoke club that's just bringing the house down because he's killing it. Especially on Take On Me. I think Rivers and the band perfectly capture the fantastical bliss of that song. So I do have quite a bit of praise for a lot of songs on this record. However, there are other cuts on here where I think the results are less than desirable and the formula changes up usually for the worst. The band's take on Black Sabbath's Paranoid sees Weezer going from doing covers to literally like bad impressions of bands. Brian Bell's vocals on this cut just sound like bad Aussie vocal cosplay. The thunderous blown out guitar chords and drums are very heavy, but I think the band's performance on this cut lacks the, the finesse that Sabbath originally brought to the table on this song. I think the group's version of ELO's Mr. Blue Sky leaves a lot to be desired too. The original cut's quirky and quaint mix is pretty great. Meanwhile, Weezer goes for something that is much plainer and average and heavier. I get that it's more in line with their usual sound, but the very stiff and peppy tempo of the track uh, with a, I guess, sort of more straightforward delivery, just feels like the band is trying to rush through the song. If they were going to play it this straight, I think they could have gotten a lot more soul out of it by slowing down the tempo and just doing this track a bit more passionately. Because the silly and playful demeanor of the original is where a lot of its appeal comes from, and Weezer has completely lost that. Weezer's rendition of Billie Jean, uh, I think, borders on unintentionally hilarious, as Rivers does his best to not only sing the lead, but also recreate every single Michael Jackson ad-lib in the background too. Which leads to a lot of weird and ridiculous vocal flubs and yelps and other contortions that I can't even describe. <laughs> the absolutely roaring guitars on the pre-chorus do seem like a little bit much for an instrumental that mostly feels like a note-for-note recreation. It just sort of makes those blaring Weezer chords just stick out in a really awful way. However, I do have to give it to the band for making a, a better version of this track than Alien Ant Farm did of the song Smooth Criminal. Certainly not as bad as a rock rendition of a Michael Jackson song could get. But where the guitars truly do go overboard on this record is on the closing track, the version that the band provides of Stand By Me. The value in the original of this song is found in its ballad at the core of the track and the dramatic space surrounding it. And from the first beat of this cut, Rivers and the rest of the band are already doing too much, especially with the big fat heavy 
heavy bass synth notes playing throughout the track. Then once the heavy, crunchy metal distortion guitar chords pop in, it, it's just over for me. They're just, ugh, they killed it. You're smothering the song in this horrendous distortion that does it no justice whatsoever. And it's sad because I think the band actually did a decent job of covering more nuanced numbers on this thing, like Happy Together. It's pretty impressive how they were able to stick so faithfully to the tune and also just beef it up, make it heavier and louder, and still create that sense of euphoria when they blast into uh, the very layered and very, very overwhelming hook. Overall, Teal, I think, is a somewhat entertaining release. There were only a few tracks here that were so bad that I winced, and even some of the weaker spots on this thing are at least worth a giggle. But for the most part, this record delivers some pretty fun performances and renditions of very enjoyable pop tracks. The band pulls these songs off pretty well. You know, I hate to trot out the, well, it's good for what it is defense, but, you know, as, as far as a covers album, album orchestrated by a pretty popular rock band, it is pretty decent for what it is. It's definitely not as bad as covers albums get. Six Feet Under doing death metal covers of one ACDC song after another, no thank you. And there are at least a few originals-based records in Weezer's discography that I actually prefer Teal to, quite frankly. I'm feeling a light to decent six on this thing. Hey, buddy. It's track reviews. The Australian garage punk psych crazy, crazy, crazy band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. They are back with a brand new track. Seems they are going to be making quite a bit of noise in 2019. I'm happy to hear that after the incredible run of records that they uh, dropped not too long ago. Name of the new track over here, Psy Boogie. Uh, comes with a music video. We're not going to be checking that out, but we are going to be, uh, you know, checking out this uh, this new single over here. Ba bam. <laughs> okay, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Side Boogie. Uh, some thoughts on that track? Interesting cut. Interesting cut. Interesting starter to this new album cycle. I have to admit, at first, I was highly skeptical of what direction it was going in because it did sound kind of silly, maybe a little too tongue-in-cheek, and maybe even like a novelty. Uh, but the more I listened to it, the more I came to appreciate the weird collection of sounds and influences going into this track. I mean, th there is something to it that does feel like a <clears throat> a bit like a novelty or you know, kind of kitschy, like a like a switched-on Bach synth uh record uh, that, that's uh obviously a little a little cheeky in its uh uh presentation and the concept that it's going for but then at the core of it it's almost like i'm listening to daft punk <laughs> fused with zz top you have like these these nice swinging smooth kind of like blues rock grooves kind of playing throughout the cut and on top of that, you just have all of these analog synths and the robotic vocoder vocals and uh, some psychedelic twists and turns and effects that uh, are, are laced into the production really nicely. It is a long track at almost seven minutes, uh, but I wouldn't say that I disliked uh, the progression of all of it. You know, it's not a very fast track. It's not a track that's uh, dense with all kinds of crazy changes. It's very mid-paced, very easygoing. There was a point at like 
you know, two minutes and 47 seconds in or, or so, so where I felt like, okay, I feel like I've heard a vast majority of what this song is going to give me. Like, where are we going next? But, you know, the grooves stayed pretty uh, fresh throughout the track. And there was kind of like a nice bridge and transition section of the song that uh, built up really nicely. And I do love uh, those portions of the cut where the band is sort of ascending up these, uh, you know, bass lines, uh, you know, these root notes. <laughs> Just kind of like really bringing that tension up uh, before they bust into the next phase of the verse, which was really nice. It's like a really nice uh, transition the band pulled together there. Uh, they could have easily just kind of gone straight from that hook right into the next verse, but they came through with a nice, fantastic transition to just kind of like inject more flavor into it, inject more personality into the structure. So uh, yeah, thought it was a pretty good track. Uh, again, skeptical of the aesthetic and sonic direction so far, but honestly and truthfully, if if you told me that King Gizzard went into the studio with guns to their heads and somebody saying, you have to make an electronic, uh, <laughs> you have to make an electronic record now, go. Like, this is, this is exactly what I, I would expect them to do. <laughs> At least from uh, the, the personality and kind of the character front. Because while, yes, there are obviously some deeply rooted electronic elements through uh, through and through on this track. It's uh, really old school as far as the throwback analog synth sounds. It does sound a little hokey and a little silly and kind of playful and weird, uh, like pretty much all King Gizzard songs do. And uh, there is a strong foundation of uh, surrealism and uh, old school rock and roll thrown in there as well, which again, also kind of like uh, consistent tenets of the King Gizzard Credo. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a really nice way of the band kind of switching up their sound, doing something different, but not really diverting that hard from the core elements that fans have enjoyed about King Gizzard's music up until this point. Um, really enjoy the, uh, the track. I think it's great. Uh, looking forward and hoping uh, that this new record uh, comes through with more tracks like this. And, and if they, if it does, I wouldn't be surprised because, I mean, King Gizzard is nothing if not consistent and conceptual. I can't imagine they would drop a track like this without uh, sort of thinking about how it's going to work in with the rest of the record, especially with that outro, which sounded like, you know, a weird, demonic, almost godly voice uh, kind of entering the mix, like it's kind of carrying on another piece of an ongoing narrative on a larger LP. Um, you know, to go back to uh, Murder of the Universe, uh, I mean, I, I like... The idea of sort of doing a concept and a story album like that, uh, I think there are some ways that it could have been better executed. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if the band could go back into that direction and, uh, you know, do it in such a way where it's not so overbearing and it's not uh, so, I guess, interruptive as far as like the quality and the enjoyability of the music goes, uh, I mean, why not? So um, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, going to be talking about this new collaborative cut, uh, which is connected to Little Peep, so kind of a posthumous Little Peep track, but obviously being guided by the input and the creativity of I Love McConan. So this is the second uh, track that has dropped from Little Peep that I Love McConan has been connected to. That song that dropped a little while ago featuring XXXTentacion was uh, originally 
uh, supposed to feature I Love McCone, and he had input on that track uh, at first, and then it sort of evolved into something different. Uh, but this track is uh, featuring I Love McConan actually, and actually has Fallout Boy on the cut as well. A lot of people in reaction to this track have been citing the fact that Peep was both a big fan of McConan and Fallout Boy, uh, which you can certainly hear in his music. And uh, yeah, let's uh, give the track a shot. It's titled I've Been Waiting. Uh, let's hear what's up with it. Um, hopefully it's a bit more well put together than some of the other posthumous material we have been hearing lately, which has been a little thrown together in my opinion. Um, yeah, let's just give it a shot. But bam. <laughs> Okay, I'm <laughs> still kind of floored as to uh, uh, how all of these voices came together for this one track, uh, but still. Um, th that actually assembled pretty nicely. Uh, there were some issues that I had with it, but uh, McConan, who I did not know previously, could pull off a pretty nice croon. I'll be waiting for my love, waiting for my love. Uh, sort of sounds like a swanky old school synth pop front man in a way, uh, not too bad. And the way little peeps voice, even though there is just really kind of one vocal bit that they play multiple times on the track, uh, the way that he plays against that with kind of this snotty punkish voice, almost like I'm listening to an old school Joe Strummer recording, but with like an American accent or something, maybe with like a, you know, more updated, uh, like a two thousands era pop punk kind of attitude to it. Um, the way that he plays into the song comes off pretty well too. It's definitely one of his more uh, sort of over the top vocal deliveries that I've ever heard him record. I mean, typically his voice is pretty dejected and emotionally just flat a little bit. Uh, and, and obviously that's intentional to sort of embrace this very despondent, depressing vibe, but uh, his voice was actually kind of lively for the few bits that it was included on this record. The fusion of rock and electropop that basically served as the instrumental was not too bad either. Uh, liked the balance of the voices. I uh, thought the mix was really vibrant and colorful and punchy. Again, like both McConan and Peep's input into the cut, the things that I didn't really care for all that much were uh, when McConan sort of drifted out of the choruses to do a verse, I thought his vocalizations got kind of weird. And frankly, I didn't really care for the bits where Fallout Boy was sort of making this very bold presence known. I'm not exactly sure how much input they had in the instrumental here. I imagine possibly quite a bit. I mean, the the sound of the beat here is very reminiscent of much of what you'll find on the last Fallout Boy album. Those elements of, yes, rock music, but also electro and electropop, maybe a bit of EDM as well. So all of that is kind of working together pretty cohesively, I would say, until both the underwhelming verses from uh, Fall Out Boy and McConan, also the way the beat kind of shifts under the Fall Out Boy sections, where it seems to go into even a stronger electro direction, uh, which did get kind of distracting and, uh, to me, aesthetically just felt really horrendous, like many other cuts off that same Fall Out Boy record, which uh, leads me to believe that they had a you know, pretty deep hand into the way the instrumental sort of sounded on this one. 
So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of spots on the back end of this cut that I don't really care for. Uh, but as far as uh, McConan and Peep go, it sounds okay, though I think uh, uh, sort of naming the song directly after Little Peep as if, uh, you know, his presence is one of the largest on the entire track is... Uh, a little much and probably comes mostly down to marketing, obviously. I wouldn't say it's one of the best tracks I've heard all week or anything like that, but certainly it's pretty listenable and uh, a sugary and sweet, peppy and kind of upbeat change of pace for McConan and Peep's material up until this point. Uh, in that respect, it goes pretty well. You know, something uh, that's this bold of a change, I think, could have gone much worse than it actually did. Uh, but it's pretty tolerable. It's actually pretty tolerable. Uh, just wish uh, Fallout Boy's contributions weren't quite so obnoxious, I guess. But I will uh, leave it at that. And that is going to be it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Shout out to Jonah, who assembles every single one of these episodes. Hit us up on social media, AFantano on Instagram, at The Needle Drop on Twitter. Also follow us on YouTube.com slash The Needle Drop and YouTube.com slash Fantano. And don't miss a single piece of content that we drop. And, uh, and finally, also TheNeedleDrop.com for uh, all updates on everything else that we are doing. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. We will catch you guys in the next episode. Anthony Fantano, The Needle Drop Podcast, uh, forever. <laughs>